0: 1980, a woman named Rosie Ruiz made uh, quite a bit of 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 news, national news. Rosie Ruiz had just won the Boston Marathon, but the reason it was so noteworthy was because 18 months prior, she had decided to become a recreational runner. She had never run before. She decided to start jogging around Central Park because she lived in New York City, and then she decided, I think I'm going to try a marathon and she did one marathon and she all of a sudden was running in the Boston Marathon and then she was the fastest woman in the world and the other reason she made news is that when she crossed the finish line she wasn't really sweating. We are like who is this woman that has been running rec- recreationally for 18 months and just nearly broke the world record for the marathon and so it was all over global news, Rosie Ruiz, this phenom and if it Sounds too good to be true. It's because it is. Eight days later, she was stripped of that, of that award because uh, she actually had ridden a, a subway for the vast majority of the ride. Um, the way that she qualified for the Boston was she rode a subway in New York and she, she qualified with her New York marathon and then she ran the Boston marathon and she figured it worked the first time. I'll do it again. and nearly broke a world record doing so. They were like, wow, you're not even sweating, Rosie, because um, I haven't run, right? Uh, Rosie Ruiz was enticed by a shortcut, knowing that it could, it could secure what she wanted without requiring all that she didn't want to give. And I, that, that imagery, I think, is really helpful for us this morning as we continue it in our study in the book of Matthew, because this morning we're talking about resisting temptation, We're talking about the hot breath of Satan and of those who work for him that entice the faithful to, to disbelieve what God has said to be true of them and to stay faithful on the road that God has put before them. And the way that the voice of the enemy most consistently sounds, the content of what it is that he most consistently puts before us is it doesn't have to be this hard, take a shortcut. It is an enticing voice that invites us out of pain and devastation and wilderness into shortcuts that lead to glory without pain. You see, the enemy's package is always glory without pain. And this morning, we are going to, as it were, I, I feel like it's a, a bit of battle that we're doing, as I've been praying for you and thinking about the ways where our minds and our hearts are engaged in, in warfare where we experience temptation and we are tempted to take shortcuts from what it is that God has called us to I want us to situate ourselves right at that point point. and my hope and my longing my prayer for you is that we are a people more prepared to resist temptation because of the model and the power and the authority of our Lord Jesus. As we, as we watch the way that he engages and resists temptation, we're going we're to learn from him this morning. And as we do, what we're going to learn is we're going to learn to resist enticing shortcuts through spirit-orchestrated pain. It's going to be one of the keys that if we're going to resist the enticement towards shortcuts, we're going to begin to understand the way that, that the spirit orchestrates pain orchestrates wilderness, and in that invites us to adore God's word. You see, we resist the enticing shortcuts as we trust God's word, even in the midst of spirit-orchestrated pain. Let's see if we can make sense of that together. We're going to plunge in first by, by examining the context of temptation. What's the context that most consistently establishes kind of the space where temptation arises in our life? We're going to do that by... Examining the the context of temptation for Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. A few notes about the context of temptation from this text. Before we dig into particularly verses 1 through 11, the first note of context draws back on where we were last week. Now if you remember at the end of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was at a high moment. He was submitting to the hand of his God humbly. He was baptized. He's coming up out of the waters of baptism as the Holy Spirit is descending on him, as the Father's voice is resonating from heaven saying, oh, I delight in my boy. He is mine. And it's from that that in Matthew chapter four and verse one, when you read the word then, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. The then is referencing at that moment. So the first note about the context of temptation is it often comes on the heels of great victory and God's nearness. Pay attention throughout the scriptures and throughout our own stories. What we will consistently experience, what we will realize is that is oftentimes on the heels of a moment where we've been just enraptured by God's presence going, I will never forget the love of God. He's so near and he's so close and I feel... Such victory in this moment. Beware in those moments because it's oftentimes on the descent from those high places that the enemy cowers in the shadows and he's ready to pounce. You see, the first note about context of temptation, it's oftentimes on the heels of of, of great victory. We see that in David's life. We see it in Elijah just after he battles the prophets of Baal. It's right after that that he's despairing of life itself out in the wilderness. That it's oftentimes right after God has worked powerfully. You see, but as we we dig into this text particularly and continue to ask the question, what is the context of temptation? The second note is this. Pay attention in verse 1. How did Jesus end up in the place of testing of temptation? Then Jesus was led up. See that phrase, led up? By the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The context of this temptation is that it is spirit orchestrated, spirit ordained. The Holy Spirit is actively leading Jesus into the place of temptation, the place of testing. Now, the word for temptation in your, in your Bible, in the Greek, it is a neutral word. It sounds so negative when we say temptation. We think, oh, that's, that's only and always a bad thing the term in Greek is actually a neutral. It's a neutral that can mean test, like an exam, being challenged, or temptation. And what we see is in this beautiful and and somewhat confusing and mysterious moment, what the, the devil intends for temptation, temptation towards evil and sin, the Holy Spirit is leveraging for testing, examining. No one likes a test, right? No one's excited about test day. I remember my eighth grade English teacher was a woman named Mrs. Brown. Mrs. Brown didn't smile much. She, she wore a tight bun and she had gray hair and she was very serious about the English language. Way more serious than any eighth graders in her class were as you might imagine. And I remember at the time not really liking Mrs. Brown. And certainly not being excited about test day because she was very demanding. She wanted every one of her students to have a command of the English language. And I remember, like, what's the right word? Mm, I didn't like tests in Mrs. Brown's class. I feel like all other words might not be appropriate from the pulpit. I didn't like Mrs. Brown's test days because they were so demanding, but the reality was what she was doing was she was setting up a context that was drawing something out of us. It was exposing, have you done the work and do you have the command? Is this going to serve you the rest of your life? What felt like an evil in the hands of someone who had good intentions for us was actually a test to draw out what was, what was good, what was needed. The context of temptation that we have to realize is this. The Holy Spirit actually orchestrates moments where we encounter one who has malicious intent. The enemy is tempting you towards evil, but the Holy Spirit is testing to see what is in the heart of my beloved. Are they prepared and ready to step into this? As we understand the context of temptation, will we be more prepared to resist it by recognizing, oh, I recognize what this is. The Holy Spirit is in this. Just because I am tempted in this moment doesn't mean I've necessarily taken a wrong turn. I may have taken a right one. I may be in lockstep with the Holy Spirit in this moment, but the invitation is, what am I going to do? What's going to be called out of me? The context of temptation in this moment is the Holy Spirit orchestrating this scenario. The Holy Spirit is involved. A couple other notes about the context of temptation before we move on is that it happens in the wilderness. Did you see that? That the Holy Spirit leads for this testing into the wilderness, the Hebrew term that stands behind this Greek text that's being translated. The original term in the the Old Covenant language, Jeshimon, was was actually the devastation. That the, the wilderness reflected the devastation, the exposure led into a place where you're totally and completely exposed that you might even describe as the devastation. That coming down from the high water mark of I've experienced God's love and nearness, I've I've come into this place actually led by the spirit of God to be tested and now I'm in this this space of devastation. This is the context where temptation grows strong. The devastation. It might be that in this moment we, we see that Jesus is hot and hungry and tired And in the moment of being hot, hungry, tired, and tempted in the wilderness, we know that the enemy's voice is going to be very believable. So for us to understand the context of temptation, pay attention. Where have you experienced God's kindness? What does it look like for you to be led by the Spirit? But the Spirit might be leading you into a place that feels like the devastation. For instance, this might be singleness that lingers. You might be thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the love of God and I'm following the Spirit, but now I'm in this space where I just continue to long for something that God isn't providing. And in that wilderness of prolonged singleness, it doesn't just feel like wilderness anymore. It feels like devastation. And in that space, the voice of the enemy becomes strong. He begins to whisper. He begins to say things that aren't true where a couple struggles to conceive and have a child it'll feel like wilderness where we might wonder where did i take a wrong turn but in fact the holy spirit is leading and guiding and taking us to a place to draw things out of us that we haven't been forgotten by god we've been led by god but it feels like devastation it might be frustration at work as you continue to pour yourself out and it never feels like it's, it's recognized or cherished. In fact, you feel like you've been passed over yet again and you go, what is the deal? I feel like I'm in lockstep with the Spirit. I feel like I'm doing what I'm called to do and yet here is the wilderness, the devastation that meets me again. This is the context within which temptation grows strong. The last note that I'd make about the context of temptation is that it is personal that it's not just evil generally but it's the devil did you see that in verse one that meets Jesus in the wilderness that we are battling three enemies of our soul the world the flesh and the devil and the devil and those demonic spirits that follow his proddings and direction they hate the faithful the devil exists to to steal and to kill and to destroy. His native tongue is deception and lies and his target is Christians. His target is the church to demean the glory of God by ruining the witness of Christians, by stealing their, their ability to trust in the character and the goodness of God that you daily are stepping into a battlefield with an enemy who hates you and who wants to rob you of joy and the fullness of life. The context of, for temptation, pay attention where you're on the descent from sweet moments in the presence of God. Pay attention to the moments where the Holy Spirit has led you into places that feel like desert exposure. And pay attention to this reality that the, the voice of the enemy will be personal. Paying attention and using the world's influence and in your very flesh to speak things to you that become increasingly believable. This is the context. Of temptation for those that are laboring to journey with god to the world so what is the anatomy of temptation if that's if that's the setting within which temptation comes i want to expose the very work of the enemy in hopes that we as a people will be more prepared to resist his work that's the context let's talk about the anatomy what is temptation itself i want to explore what it is that the devil is saying to the son of God here in this, in this real historical moment in the desert. This moment that, in fact, Jesus is the only one that was there. It's the only one of the events in all of his life throughout the gospels. It's the only event in all the gospels where he is the only eyewitness account. So we know that it's Jesus who told his disciples about this. He invited them into this. He actually articulated this for the authors of the gospels because they didn't know about it otherwise. But what he was doing is saying, I want you to not be unaware. I'm going to tell you about this clash I had with the devil out in the wilderness so that you understand what temptation is and how it works. So let's look at the anatomy of temptation. Look back at at what the devil has to say. and Let's pick up in verse three and verse six, the first note about the anatomy of temptation. It says, the tempter came to him and said to him, see this big if, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And we showed up again in verse six for a second temptation. He says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And then the the devil commences to quote scripture out of context for his own purposes back to the son of God. The first note about the anatomy of temptation, the places where the enemy's voice will be most powerful for you in the wilderness in these moments of exposure. He starts by trying to undermine our identity. What is it that Jesus just heard at his baptism? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This Jesus who had been raised In a small town where his mom got pregnant out of wedlock and claimed that God did it and people didn't fully buy that. He dealt with this cloud over his whole life about his fatherhood that gets thrown back in his face even in the book of John chapter 8. People are saying to him, who even is your father? We've heard your story. Jesus dealt with this all of his life wrestling with his His divine sonship. Is it true that God loves me and that I'm really his? The temptation that the enemy is pushing on is can you really believe that you are the beloved child of God? He starts by trying to undermine identity if you're the son of God. Insinuating that these present circumstances undermine what you believe to be true of god in essence he's going if you were the son of god would you be out in the wilderness hot and hungry and exposed and tired would you be here if god loved you you see the first part of the anatomy of temptation is that that god begins to speak into that place and say would you really be here still single would you really still be here childless Would you really still be here with work, frustrating, frustrated in this way? Would you really still be here with these sorts of struggles in your marriage? Would you really still be here with this sort of lack of real intimacy and friendship that you feel so lonely and alone? And the enemy starts to whisper and goes, you know what this proves? What you've always thought might be the case. God doesn't love you. He doesn't see you and he doesn't care about you. You see, the enemy starts... The point of identity. And says your present circumstances undermine everything that you've hoped was true in God. Have you ever heard anything like that in your head and heart? This is the anatomy of temptation. I go through it every day. And this, my friend Mark, this is the friend of the enemy wanting you to forget what you have heard in these moments. I oh want God. Amen. That when we hear from God in the community of his people, when we sit with his word open, when the spirit ministers to us as we're worshiping and we hear the voices of other washing overs, listen to me, brothers and sisters, this is a word to be trusted in your life. The word that is not to be trusted is when you're out in the wilderness and the hot breath starts to whisper, you never were loved and you know it, don't you? He wants you to believe your present circumstances over the voice of the trustworthy king. You see, the anatomy of temptation starts with striking at your core identity, and then he does it in three different ways. He comes at the point of weakness, first of all. Did you hear it? The point of weakness in verse 3, Jesus has just been fasting for 40 days, and the text says, as if we wouldn't have guessed it at the end of verse 2, he says, he was hungry. You know, Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, and in case you're wondering, he's hungry. He's hungry. Verse 3, the tempter's word at the point of hunger is turn these stones into bread. He comes to us at our point of weakness. As he's trying to undermine identity, he comes to us and he begins to whisper to us about our point of weakness. And then what he offers is a shortcut. You don't have to endure pain and be faithful in this space. Here is a shortcut to glory. The reason that pornography is such a powerful force that is... Stealing and killing and destroying relationships, marriages, health and wholeness is because it's an enticing shortcut to glory without pain. You're lonely. You're struggling. Does anybody really understand? Here is a simple shortcut that won't require death to self, commitment to another. It won't, inquire, it won't require patience and perseverance tending to the emotional well-being of another human, all it requires is a few simple clicks and you can be satisfied. You see, this is the voice of the enemy that comes in at the point of weakness and says, I am offering a shortcut and it is enticing. It comes at the point of weakness. Present weakness. Or if present weakness doesn't return fruitful for the enemy, he, he changes tactics real quickly as he does with Jesus. Jesus resists the temptation at the point of his hunger and the enemy comes right back to his point of strength. The enemy will either come at you at the present point of your weakness or the present point of your strength and he does so against Jesus in verse five and six. The devil took him to the holy city and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and on their On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's happening here? Jesus' ministry was just inaugurated. And he knows from the very beginning of his ministry that the call for him is death. A slow, patient walk as he clearly articulates God's word, as he reaches out with compassion healing those that are needy, slowly, patiently revealing the character of God, finally culminating in his own righteous, humble, faithful death on the cross. It is a slow, patient, painful road for Jesus. And the enemy shows up and he says, I've got a plan. You're just kicking off this ministry thing. Let's go to the highest place, in the most densely populated area of town, you'll stand on the edge of the temple and then I just want you to do like a Peter Pan thing, right off the edge, the angels are gonna catch you, you will immediately be recognized as spectacular in every way. You see, you don't have to do the slow, patient reveal thing. When angels come swooping out of the heavens and catch you, nobody will be wondering as to who you are. Done and done. Jesus, just be spectacular. You see, it's a shortcut to glory without pain at the point of his strength. He knows it's true. Jesus could do this. This is within Jesus's ability. But he doesn't respond at the point of strength. And, and I think we, we have to recognize that, that it'll oftentimes be, as your identity is picked at and prodded at, am I really loved by God? One of the temptations that you're going to have consistently the enemy is going to whisper to you and say, in that, in that desert place where you're struggling, where, where he's saying, are you loved by God? He will come to you at the point of strength and say, well, meet your own needs. Be spectacular. You can satisfy this. You can fix this. This, in our current setting and context, is where the place of greed and materialism often rushes in. That we have areas of deficit, areas where we're exposed, areas where we're we're ushered into the wilderness because the Holy Spirit wants to meet us and draw things out of us. But we will rely on some area of strength. Oftentimes for for an educated and wealthy people, it can be, well, I'm just going to accomplish more and buy more and then I'm going to be satisfied. And we think that the car or the house or the thing or the that now at the point of strength, because I am strong, I am spectacular and I'm okay, and yes, I am loved by God. He's going, ah, ah. ah. Your strength being leveraged to buttress your identity is robbing you of what it is that God wants to teach you. He's going, don't don't try to bypass pain. Spirit orchestrated pain by hopping a subway and not running the path in front of you. Like, stay the course, lean in. Don't leverage your strength to minimize the pain and thinking that that's what's gonna secure your identity. You see, he comes to Jesus at the point of weakness, he comes at the point of strength and when Jesus resists both of those temptations, he doesn't just deal with the present weakness or present strength, he then comes at the point of longing the longing for what's out in front. Look at verse eight and nine with me. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain. Now, most of this exchange with the devil, if you're wondering where and how is this happening, this is is very likely a vision that Jesus is having. There's not a a high mountain in that area where he can see the whole world, but he's having an exchange as he is fasting and praying and God is speaking to him. He's having an exchange with the devil in this, in this kind of vision state and the, and the devil takes him to this place and it's as if he's on a high mountain and it says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. You see, Jesus is the king and he's come to establish the kingdom of God. He is bringing God's kingdom from heaven to earth and it's gonna break in like a seed and then it's gonna slowly grow into a beautiful and big uh, tree that can can host as, as everything kind of finds its, hel- its health and its shade that Jesus is coming in in small ways to establish the kingdom now as it grows into the kingdom to come. So he is longing for the kingdom. That's why he's here. But the enemy says you don't have to long and wait. You can take a shortcut. Your longing for future realities can be met now. There's a prominent pastor that uh, several years back in a desire to be more notable. He, he actually leveraged some of his church funds to buy a significant number of his books to get a New York Times bestseller stamp so that he could sell more books. And And it was the, the unraveling of a really profound, beautiful ministry. It was, it was sad to watch as it started and, and in a, a discussion of it, it was like, well, this just seemed to make sense at the time. But the idea... The idea was this longing for something that we've been grasping at and and haven't been able to lay hold of. And we think, what's what's within my means to lay hold of that future reality that I want now? And the enemy makes it seem, it, it, it makes it feel like it makes such sense in the moment. Because the world and the flesh are conspiring and in this wilderness of longing, the enemy begins to whisper and says, just do what it takes to lay hold of the future now. Don't wait, don't be patient. You know, if I were to summarize all that I just said about the anatomy of temptation, what I want you to hear is this. Temptation equals enticing shortcuts. If you're wondering how temptation is functioning in your life, it comes to you at the point of strength and weakness and longing, but temptation is consistently an enticing shortcut. Glory without pain. So how do we defeat temptation? We we understand the context of it. We understand the anatomy of it. How do we defeat it? Well, the invitation is this, to cherish, to adore the word of God. In verse four, seven, and 10, we see Jesus responding. Let's look at it together. Look at the text with me. It says, but he being Jesus answered the first temptation of the enemy. And he says, it is written Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He's quoting about the people of God in the wilderness that are struggling in the wilderness for 40 years of of hunger and wandering. And so after he has experienced 40 days in the wilderness of hunger, he's embodying all that they were intended to be. And he's quoting the text in context, even as he fulfills it, saying, it is written, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In verse seven, in like manner, what he says is this, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Saying, it's not that we're testing God to reveal his power, it's that we trust that he is powerful and we wait for him. In verse 10, yet again, he says this, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only, Shall you serve? Now how does Jesus respond to temptation? He three times over responds to the enemy and do you know that he only says two words that aren't him quoting scripture? Only two words. The enemy's coming at him and coming at him and coming at him and what's coming out of him is the word of God that has been memorized and meditated upon and now is declared with authority such authority that the only two words that Jesus says that aren't a quotation are be gone he has authority over the enemy because he is so soaked in the voice of his father that when we are saturated down to the bone where we love the word of God and we've hidden it away and we, we speak it with authority now we can step from that place into authority and we can in the moment of temptation as the voice of the enemy is most believable it's most hot down our neck it is saying you can just you can make the pain go away take the short cut as we, as we meditate upon and we speak God's word we can with authority say be gone you see You have one offensive weapon in spiritual warfare, one. Ephesians 6 talks about the warfare we're a part of and we have all of this different gear to fight and there's only one weapon and it's the word of God. Listen, you are in a battle. You have an enemy that wants to rob you of fullness of life and joy. And you have one weapon to fight back. One weapon. The word of God. Where we as a people leave the word of God gathering dust. We're not sure where it is or the last time we cracked it on our own. The degree to which you rely on me to open it for you. You are exposing yourself to significant temptation and struggle. The invitation is to love the word of God. To adore it. To meditate on it. To memorize it. And to declare it with such authority that we're able to command the enemy, be gone. And as we adore the word of God, we realize this, the word of God is not just written, it's in flesh. The invitation this morning to resist the enticement of these shortcuts is to cherish the word of God, which means both memorize and meditating this text, but also savoring the word made flesh. Do you see that where every one of us is so enticed to take shortcuts, where Adam with a belly full of fruit living in the garden was defeated by this same enemy and where Israel struggling in the wilderness was consistently exposed for their lack of faith for God and we likewise, the people of God consistently are enticed towards shortcuts and we could all unfortunately stand and testify time and time and time again of the ways that we have taken shortcuts that have not led to the glory we were promised. We are a sinful people, easily led astray. But in Jesus, what we have is one who never took a shortcut, never. Like when the road was most painful, when it was most tempting to just make it go away, when he was on the path of his own destruction, even into the last moments, when he was offered a dulling agent as he was going to the cross, here, drink some of this. It will make the pain bless. In those moments, Jesus resisted even that, saying, I am not gonna dull this. I'm not gonna sidestep this. I'm gonna remain faithful to the very end, which actually is going to be my devastating death. If ever there was devastation in wilderness, it was the one that Jesus endured." And he endured faithfully and powerfully in such a way that he rose in victory over it, saying, the devastation no longer has authority on me or anyone who's with me. When we adore the word of God written and in flesh, we all of a sudden have authority to in the moments of devastation and temptation to look back and say, be God. And the beauty is that in verse 11, did you see it? the sweet communion on the other side of temptation resisted. It says, then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. When we are empowered by trust in this resurrected Jesus, soaking in the word of God, establishing authority in the moments of temptation, listen, you might be in the wilderness right now. Your strength may be wavering You may be thinking, you know what, why do I continue to wait and to trust? It's just so painful. Listen, brothers and sisters, temptation resisted by the power of Jesus and the power of God's word. On the other side of it, there is such sweet communion. God restores and refreshes his saints in community with one another as we wait for the ultimate refreshing in his presence. Do not lose hope. On the other side of temptation resisted, there is joy fullness and comfort as god nourishes his own and so brothers and sisters resist temptation resist enticing shortcuts endure through spirit orchestrated pain and do so by adoring the word of god let me pray for us God, we come to you in this moment, not just because we, this is what I'm supposed to do when I'm done preaching. Like, I pray that we would believe this, that this wouldn't be like religious gymnastics, us hitting the marks at the right moments, but this would be our hearts exposed before you, going, God, we need you. We are so easily led astray. We are predictable in our temptation and our cowardice and our, and our lack of faith. And what we need is an infusion of your authority and your power. God, I pray that you would convict us. That where we, as your adopted sons and daughters, have been covered over with your love, that you would forgive us for the ways that we just don't believe what you've said to be true, where we don't cherish your word, where we leave it unread because we convinced ourselves that we are too busy because we are too distracted, because we are so fascinated with things that are flittering about and will be gone tomorrow, I pray, God, that we would root down in what's true and that we would fight a good fight. And God, for those that have yet to trust in Jesus, that have been battered about by the enemy's voice, I pray that even today, even now, that for those of our our friends who are in the mix that are wrestling with the claims of Jesus. If that's you, I just want you to hear his invitation to come to him. That he will fight with you and he will fight for you. In fact, he already has at the cross and the empty tomb. Would you come and trust his goodness and his love and experience a whole new life? Oh God, make it true that we would be a people who resist the enticing shortcuts, and who live faithfully, even in the midst of pain, until we see your face? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.